Hi, I'm Mary Mancini, and this is my fantasy funeral. Imagine you are dead, but you get to design your own funeral. What songs will be played? Who will deliver your eulogy? And where will your remains rest forevermore? This is the scenario presented to my guest today. I'm Ryan Briegel, and you're listening to my fantasy funeral. My guest today is a former business owner and a former broadcaster, yet forever an activist. She has been the chair of the Tennessee Democratic Party since 2015, and her successful leadership can certainly be attributed to, among other things, her ability to recognize what is missing in her community and then doing what she can to fill that void. And as we'll see, she's been doing this all her life. But my guest didn't enter Nashville's cultural sphere through politics. She began with vinyl, all-ages rock shows, and a dog named Lucy. After noticing the lack of independent record stores in Nashville, she opened Lucy's Record Shop on Church Street in 1992, which for five years was host to touring bands like They Might Be Giants, Yola Tingo, Bikini Kill, and countless more, as well as many local bands and hometown shows for a group called Lamb Chop, whose singer my guest would later marry. Lucy's closed its doors in 1998, and my guest would soon go head-on into politics, co-hosting the weekly show Liberadio on WRVU and working as executive director for Tennessee Citizen Action, where she focused on fighting for the rights of voters. The Nashville scene not only bestowed upon her the title of Best Democrat in 2016, but when she ran against Jeff Yarbrough for Tennessee State Senate two years prior, the scene awarded both campaigns with the Best Race That Stayed Positive Award. Clearly, my guest is someone that politicians could learn many lessons from. She is Mary Mancini. Hello, Mary. Welcome to my fantasy funeral. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Today, we are going to kill you off and take a look at the funeral you would plan for yourself. But I wanted to begin by asking you if your own death is something you ever really think about. Yes. Um, And as I get older, a lot more. Uh, And I think that's natural. Uh, But as I get older, as I see um, relatives and friends and other loved ones uh, pass away, it really kind of like, you know, it smacks you in the face, right? Like, oh, we're not here forever. So there's that part of it. And then the other part of it, and this gets where (laughs) this is where it gets really dark very quickly, is the political environment that we're in is very explosive. And You know, violence happens for all kinds of reasons, but a lot of the violence that we are seeing now is based on whether or not you agree with someone's ideology. And so, you know, I would be lying if I didn't say that that is, you know, something that uh, I don't think about in my position as chair of the Tennessee Democratic Party and living in Tennessee. So, um I didn't think I'd go there that quickly, but here we are. It's okay. (laughs) I wonder, do you fear, especially that you might leave us before you're able to see the progress that you want for Tennessee? Does that frighten you? No, not at all, because there's been so much progress already for the state of Tennessee. And this is, let me be absolutely clear. When I moved here almost 30 years ago, uh, I moved here because I needed to... um, 
have a change of scenery, right? I lived in New York for a number of years and things were not going well and it's a tough life to live in New York and I really needed to go somewhere to what turns out to reflect and think about things and grow up a little bit. And not only has uh, Tennessee and Nashville given me that opportunity, but it's also um, given me the opportunity to find love, given me the opportunity to thrive in a business um, and doing what I love. Uh, I've made incredible uh, friends here, lifelong friends, you know, and, I, and I've seen it change for uh, the better. It's had some issues, um, and it still has those issues, you know, issues of, you know, racism and white supremacy, you know, that goes back to this, basically the Civil War. But Tennessee also has a very progressive history when you think of things like we were actually the state that put the 19th Amendment uh, the state that basically ratified the 19th Amendment. There was one st- more state needed for a constitutional amendment, and Tennessee was it, right? And so, I mean, that's a that's a pretty progressive thing, you know. Um, when you fast forward to the the civil rights movement, you know, Nashville was on the forefront of the uh, lunch counter sit-ins. Wow. Um, you know, there were bombings here in Nashville um, uh, of prominent African-Americans uh, where they lived. You know, it was Mayor Briley, the, the, the first Mayor Briley, who was confronted after that bombing by Diane uh, Nash, who basically said, like, do you think that it's OK that the, you know, black and white people can't sit at a lunch counter? Like, is that morally right? And he said, no, it's not. And that I mean, to have a leader of. Uh, a city in Tennessee in the deep south say that meant something. So it's a complicated place and I have a complicated relationship with it. We'll definitely get into more of that. Okay. Today we will hear the five songs that you have chosen to be played during your funeral. You've cleverly snuck in two songs as your first choice, but I, I find this song combination kind of fascinating. Tell me why you chose this. It's very rare these days when uh, something moves me to tears. And my sister, who I love dearly, first discovered the musical Hamilton. And for over a year, she kept saying to me, Mary, listen to the soundtrack. You've got to listen to the soundtrack. You'll love it. And I just kept pushing it aside. And then one day I decided I, I had a road trip to do and I decided to pop it on in my car when I was driving. And by the third song, I was bawling. I was just crying outright. There was just something about it, you know, something about the music and the history of it and the the way it was put together. And, uh, you know, if you love this country like I do, you can't help but love this this musical because it just encompasses so much. So, um, you know, as I was thinking about this, because this is a very interesting exercise that you have presented to Uh to people to think about, you know, you don't really think about this until Ryan comes knocking on your door and says, hey, why don't you think about this? And I I thought about songs from Hamilton because, um, you know, it does combine sort of um, my, my love for this country and there's a definite spiritual aspect to it. But nothing seemed quite right. And then I remembered this song, which is a, a, a combination of a song from Dear Evan Hansen and from Hamilton that Ben Platt and Lin-Manuel Miranda did after the horrific shooting um, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida. And it was a way for them to reach out to these kids who were so affected by this and who were trying so hard to be heard above the din of 
the NRA, right? They were saying, we've lived through this, right? We, our voices need to be heard, right? And, and it was their way of coming together and reaching out to these kids, and they actually dedicated it to them. Mm-hmm. And they um, donated some of the proceeds to their, their group, right? It's a, a song that really moved me when I heard it again. That sort of moved me to tears the first time I heard it. But it's also very hopeful. So that's why I chose it. Hello. Raise a glass to freedom Something they can never take away No matter what they tell you Someone will come running to take you home Raise a glass to all of us Tomorrow there'll be more of us Telling the story of tonight Out of the shadows The morning is through when you need a friend to carry you when you're broken on the ground you will be found so let the sun come streaming in because you'll reach up and you'll rise again if you only look around you will be found and when our children tell their story you will be found they'll tell the story of tonight What they tell you Tomorrow there'll be more of us Telling the story of tonight The story of tonight Ben Platt and Lin-Manuel Miranda singing a medley of the songs You Will Be Found and The Story of Tonight. Mary, before you moved to Nashville in the early 1990s, um, you had referenced you lived and worked in New York City. But is that also where you grew up? Yes. In New York? Uh, Yes, but on Long Island. Okay. On Luongo Island. (laughs) What was your upbringing like there? Were your parents, did they bring politics into uh, your family when you were a child? Oh, absolutely. So it was a pretty idyllic uh, childhood, right? I mean, when you, when I tell people I grew up on Long Island, like in a small town on Long Island, you know, I kind of get kind of a weird look. But the reality is, is that each little hamlet, although they were close to one another, was its own microcosm, right? It was its own little small town. So it was, it, it's just like any other small town, right? You know, one high school, you know everybody, you b- ride your bike at night, you play with the neighbors, right? It just happened to be in a very busy place. My parents uh, never, ever did not talk about politics or religion, right? My, my mom was stay-at-home mom for the, for the most part. My dad commuted every day to New York and came home, you know, got hopped on the Long Island Railroad, went to New York, worked all day and came back again. So, um, you know, he had a lot of time to immerse himself in the news and, you know, was always coming home when we were talking about current events and things like that. But I think the person that had or that stoked in me, the passion I have for sort of civil discourse was my mother's mother, my grandmother, okay. my grandmother, my grandma Angie. And, you know, she had some, how can I put this? She had some old school ideas, right? 
but she was a deeply good person and a deeply religious person. So we would always talk, right? And I would sit on, when, when she got older and got sicker, I would just, I would sit on her bed and I would always talk to her about politics or current affairs. And then of course she always wanted to know, did I have a boyfriend and things like that. But you know, she watched Johnny Carson every night. She watched the news. She read the newspaper. She was a sounding board for me, but a way to also, for me to also find my voice. And that was really important. So I remember one, one specific conversation that I think someone else might, in a different situation, might get in trouble for, right? But I didn't. And the conversation was about dating uh, a black man. And, you know, my grandmother was like, well, you would never do that, right? <laughs> and I was like, well, I might, you know? And, and, it, was, and it was like, I was given the space to explain why, mm -hmm. right? And this, the, the why was because it's about someone's character. It's not about the color of their skin. And so being able to have that conversation in what was a safe space with someone who thought that that was very wrong, but I didn't get in trouble for it. I didn't get yelled at for it. It was just like, oh, okay, well, of course, coming from a large Italian family, you know, holidays were just a mess, right? It was like 15 people all coming to the dinner table with different ideas and opinions, and it got louder and louder and louder, you know, but it was never... You know, the conversations about politics or religion were always listened to and, it, you know, the fights were never about that. Like if there was a fight, it was never about those topics. Like those were tolerated topics, I guess. So in my house, it was, you know, that old adage, right? You should never talk about religion or politics with family. No. They just were the, the safest thing to Just talk about. the opposite with my family, yeah. And as the story goes, you, when you got older, you were working as a publicist uh, in New York for Electra Records. Yes. You left New York. You mentioned earlier you needed to leave. What was getting you in the a mindset of getting out of New York? I mean, let's think about it. New York in the late 80s. <laughs> in a, working it sounds at a amazing. Working in at so a record ways. company, right? No, it, it, was, it was really amazing. But, you know, at some point there's work, right? And then there's play. And where we were, a lot of it was like all day. Blurred. Yes, together. it was blurred. Thank you. Thank you for being so succinct. It was blurred. And, um, and I just didn't see my career. Like, I'm pretty ambitious. I just didn't see my career going anywhere in that environment. So I thought, well, let me stay in the music industry, but try somewhere else. And that was either Nashville or Los Angeles. And so you did move to Nashville. Um, you did some DJing, which sounds <laughs> incredible. So much fun. And after a while, you decided to open a record store in a space on Church Street, um, a street which looked very different than the Church Street of today. Now it's a, a street of very successful restaurants and popular gay bars. Can you describe what Church Street looked like when you opened the record store in 1992? Pretty desolate. Uh, it hardly any traffic. Uh, pretty run down. The, the place that we now know as Clyde's was an abandoned factory, and that was across the street. I remember the first ever Pride March was on Church Street, oh, wow. past uh, Lucy's, past World's End and Midnight Sun. And it was, it was pretty anemic, you know, in terms of the, the number of people. Sure. But it was, it was moving, just the same. And the record store wasn't called Lucy's initially, correct? No, it was called Revolutions Per Minute. And the idea always was to be a, not just a record store, but a place where people were able to express themselves um, politically 
And so, you know, the, the thought was, well, let's maybe a community center kind of a vibe, right? Mm-hmm. And it was great. Brad Talbot uh, did a, a, amazing. Brad Talbot's a, a local um, graphic designer and artist, and he did an amazing logo for Revolutions Per Minute. I lived there, too, in the back wow. t- for the first year. So I had Lucy with me, my dog. And uh, I realized she was a big draw. <laughs> People loved the mm-hmm. fact that there was a mm-hmm. dog in the shop. And I was like, I think I'm going to change the name. And so I changed the name to Lucy's Record Shop. And, or, you know what? I, I'm, I'm taking credit for it. I'm sure some very smart person <laughs> came into the store and said, you should change the name and name it after the dog. And I went back to Brad, and he did a, an equally as um, wonderful logo with, mm-hmm. with a car, sort of a cartoony yeah. Lucy dog. And, uh, and the rest is history. Were you skeptical at all when a guy named Donnie Kendall approached you about having shows in the back of the store? Or did you feel like that was something that you needed to keep this going? I didn't think about it like that back then. Now, in hindsight, I I think the store would not have been open as long as it was. Unless Donnie and April, April's his wife, had come and said, you know, I want we want to do these these shows here because they had lost the place that they were doing shows. Mm. And they first went to World's End, and then they they came next door, and I guess they just saw all the unused space, and they just got really excited. I didn't hesitate. I was, uh, I, I'm impetuous, much more impetuous back then, still am, <laughs> to my husband's dis- dismay. But back then I was much more so. I was like, yeah, sure, come on in. This is great. And they were so focused and had such a great vision and and they came in like that weekend with a whole group of people who just transformed the place built a stage brought sound systems in and then it was bam doing shows like then the next day it was it's pretty incredible i also gained two uh lifelong friends sure. from that experience as well so it is pretty nice lucy's too. was a, a place that n- in Nashville where kids could go for feminist group meetups under right. like a Riot Girl banner. Was it important for you to offer that sort of safe space for women and for guys that were interested in, in feminist ideals to go and, and talk about things? Yeah, and, 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 and I got to say, I grew up too, right, listening to these young women who were at that point 10 years younger than I was, right, but had been brought up with a, a different in a different decade and with a different set of parents or ideals or society was was even more advanced. So I learned a lot from them as well, just sort of reading the zines and kind of listening to the meetings that they had, you know, and I gave them the space to do it, which was very valuable, I think. Uh, and it's very valuable now to have, for people to have that, that sort of space too. But I learned just as much from them. I think, I think probably more, you know, mm-hmm. But yeah, it was it was a pretty unique, very unique time. Moving from Ollie's rock shows to something a bit more serene, tell me about the second song that you've chosen. I love Aaron Copeland, and he's considered to be sort of um, you know the dean of American composers, and so sort of going along with this theme of uh, loving America uh, in a very spiritual, very deep way. I know this song captures that. Uh, for me, you know, there's a lot of parts to um, to Appalachian Spring, but this one particular one is just again, it's something that resonates deep inside me uh, when I listen to it. 
The first movement of Aaron Copland's Appalachian Spring, performed by the New York Philharmonic, conducted by Leonard Bernstein. Mary, from 2004 to 2010, you co-hosted a political radio talk show with Freddie O'Connell on Vanderbilt's station WRVU, a show called Liberadio. Was that extremely freeing to be able to talk about what had happened in politics each week? Yes, 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 a thousand times yes. It was pretty amazing. I think it saved me a lot of money in therapy bills, seriously. Uh, It was a very difficult time. George Bush just won a second term. Is that why you started it? It actually came out of a voter registration drive that I did with a whole bunch of volunteers that summer. We went to different rock venues, and while people were standing in line to go in, we would walk up to them with a clipboard and ask if they were registered to vote. And it was a really great eye-opening experience because, you know, we we heard things like, oh, yeah, I'm registered. I can't wait to vote, you know, whatever, to my vote doesn't matter, you know, and all the excuses in between, and a lot of cynicism at that time, a lot of patriotism at that time, because it was after nine eleven, and it got a it got people in groups talking amongst themselves, which I thought like it's like success, right? Like yeah. okay, I'm not going to register because my vote doesn't matter. And coming from me standing there with a clipboard saying, "Well, yes, it does," and here are the reasons why is one thing, but hearing it from a peer that you're standing in line with to go into a rock show is something completely different. And so, you know, those conversations happened a lot as well. So, so that was what we did over that summer. Um, And then to talk about the importance of voting, Freddie and I went on, I think it was both of us. It may have just, just been me at the time we went on WRVU and was a guest on a couple of different shows that we all know how that election went and we're like well we have to continue this like something's got to change and so we asked for a show and they gave us a show and i think the first time slot we had was six to eight a.m on monday mornings but yeah you know and freddie who's now a councilman and besides being a good friend is much less impetuous than i am right Uh, very very thoughtful i'm very emotional I think we were a good balance for one Mm -hmm. another, right? Because I would say something that was like overgeneralizing, like everybody does this or something, you know, and he would kind of rein me back in. And I also, you know, would do the same, make him sort of think about things in a more emotional way, um, I think. I don't know, you have to ask him about that. (laughs) We became much more involved in the politics of Nashville and Tennessee as a whole by doing this show. And I'm not sure I would be where I am today. And I, I don't, you have to ask again, Freddie, about whether or not he would be a councilman. This is very, incredibly valuable. And again, this goes back to, you know, Nashville and Tennessee being this place where you could walk into a college radio station and ask for a show and they give you one. And then you could talk about politics, right? And so, like, that stuff doesn't happen in a lot of other cities. It's, uh, you know, but in Nashville and Tennessee, the opportunity to do what you want to do uh, is incredible. It's a great a great place to find yourself. You ran for Tennessee State Senate in I 2014, uh, the, the Democratic primary against Jeff Yarbrough. Most people will never know what it's like to wonder if they won an election or not. Do you remember how you felt on that primary election night waiting for the results to come in? You know, it's funny. Uh, I already knew I wasn't going to win. I had a very good campaign manager. And a couple of days before, 
you know, he said, you know, Mary, you're just, it's just this is not enough time. You're not going to, you're not going to win. So that night it was all about, I had so many amazing people that stepped up to work on the campaign and interns that became like a, like family. And my job that night was to do two things. One, it was to make everybody else feel better. Right. And the other thing was to make sure everybody then threw their support behind Jeff Yarbrough. Throw their support behind him as the next senator, right? Not hold any grudges, not think anything other than, okay, Jeff is going to be the best senator that we've ever had ever, and he's he's he is amazing, right? Like I think everything worked out um, for the for the best. Like sure. every uh, every everybody is where they should be. I think it's time to hear something inspiring. <laughs> Tell me about your third song choice, Mary. Again, this is a really this was a difficult exercise. Uh, I never thought about this before, but in my mind, a funeral is still should be still very spiritual, whether or not you are uh, incredibly religious or not. And and the other thing is, you, you know, I think it should be about the people that are going on and trying to inspire them. I guess that's yes. I guess that's that's all it is about. Yes. It's just, you know, love of country, love of freedom to be able to present that message at a gathering of people who are important to you and who are friends in the work that we're trying to do to make the state and the country better, there is no better song to do that with than this next song. No better one ever, ever. Come on and take a walk with me through this green and growing land. Walk through the meadows and the mountains and the sand. Walk through the valleys and the rivers and the plains Walk through the sun and walk through the rain Here is a land full of power and glory Beauty that words cannot recall All her power shall rest on the strength of her freedom Glory shall rest on us all From Colorado, Kansas and the Carolinas too Virginia and Alaska from the old to the new Texas and Ohio and the California shore. Tell me who could ask for more. Here is a land full of power and glory. Beauty that words cannot recall. All her power shall rest on the strength of her freedom. Glory shall rest on us all. Yet she's only as rich. Phil Oaks and Power and the Glory from his album All the News That's Fit to Sing. Mary, you are currently the chair of the Tennessee Democratic Party. It's a position that has a two-year term, and you've been elected chair three times in a row. Who exactly votes for that position? The State Executive Committee. So it's like a board of directors, and they are elected to their position every four years. There are two from each state Senate district, a man and a woman, has to be that way. And they are elected, there's 33 state Senate districts, 66 people, and then we've got six at-large members. So the Tennessee Federation of Democratic Women have a seat, the State House Caucus, the State Senate Democratic Caucus, the Young Democrats, oh, the Tennessee Democratic Chairs Association. Anyway, so they, they all vote every every two years they have the 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 vote when that comes around do you campaign each time just like any candidate would yeah in a similar similar fashion yeah 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 similar fashion there's a lot of phone calling there's a lot of uh well i'm very i have a uh i'm very open 
with everything pretty much at the Tennessee Democratic Party with the board of directors, right? I, I feel as if there's really nothing to hide. And if I'm doing my job correctly uh, or well enough, then I will get reelected. You know, on the face of it, Tennessee Democrats had a tough November last year, right? We lost the U.S. Senate race. We lost the governor's mansion. Uh, and those were very high-profile races. And it was tough to lose those. But there's a lot of stuff that's happening underneath. A lot of elections that are being won by Democrats and activism and inspiration by Democrats and our allies that's changing the face of Tennessee. Tennessee, before last November, was last in, pretty much last in voter turnout. Mm. The New York Times, after the August primary, wrote an article about the improvement in voter turnout, and Tennessee was the state that improved the most, right? So that's mm -hmm. a positive thing. Yes. In 2016, we won a state House seat. We had been losing state House and state Senate seats for a very, very long time. Uh, but because of sort of the direction that the state is going in, in under control of Republicans, um, simple things, I think we talked about this, but simple things like not expanding Medicaid and turning away billions in healthcare dollars that could come to the state, our tax dollars that we sent to Washington that could have come back to us to expand Medicaid and insure more people, could have kept 13 rural hospitals from closing. The Republicans said, no, we're not going to do this because it was a Democratic president's plan, because it was part of the Affordable Care Act. They made a very, very partisan decision, ideological decision, had nothing to do with what's best for the people of Tennessee. And they said, we're not going to take this money. It's going to go to other states. Um, and we're just going to let people languish not without insurance. We're going to let hospitals close. I mean, they, they know all this, right? So anyway, so, so because that's all happening, um, because of what's ha then what happened on the national level in 2018, people are really starting to, two things. One, Democrats are starting to wake up and say, like, we have to get active in Tennessee. And then there's a lot of independents who, when I first started, they may have been saying things like, I didn't leave the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party left me. Now what we're hearing from those independents, you know, um, is I didn't leave the Republican Party. The Republican Party left me because mm. it's gone so far to the right and not just so far to the right, but so far to the right and not getting anything done. Right. Letting letting things in the state get so bad for people. And so you, when you combine those things, what you have is an, an opportunity and an environment that's ripe for the Democrats of the state to go and talk to voters and make the case as to why they should be voting for Democrats. And I, I bring all that up because it's changing, right? In 2016, we flipped one seat. In 2018, we flipped two state house seats from Republican to Democrat, right? That stuff doesn't happen unless demographics are changing and voters are changing their mind about who they're voting for. Mm. I, I see a lot of things happening in the state 
underneath that some people don't see. You know, it's my my job to make the case, right? It's my job to actually talk to people and say, no, 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 I know that was a really hard thing. You know, Marsha Blackburn being senator is just really difficult to take. And, you know, Bill Lee, God bless him. You know, I mean, he, God bless his heart is what I really should say. <laughs> right? Bless his heart. But we have opportunity. And, and again, the opportunity is for us not to take, not to just assume people will vote for Democrats, but for us to go make the case as to why they should. Tell me about the fourth song that you've chosen. So the fourth song is the song that the women's suffragette movement adopted as sort of their rallying cry. They sang it in March during marches and they uh, the women who were imprisoned and who were on hunger strikes they sang it in their cells uh, it has a very to me sort of an anthemic spiritual aspect to it but it also really um, you know illustrates the toughness of people who believe in what's right and what's good and so Beyonce is going to be there and she uh, she will and maybe Jay-Z, she and Jay-Z will work on the arrangement together. Uh, but but while, while everybody is, is still in, in the room, she will be belting this one out. That is the March of the Women, and in Mary Mancini's fantasy, Beyonce would be singing this. Mary, if you had to say the one thing that concerns you the most about where the country is headed, what would that be? It's the danger of fear and racism and nationalism and white supremacy. You know, when Donald Trump says, make America great again, what he means is, white men, I'm going to help you keep your power. Marginalized communities, marginalized people, probably before, but since Barack Obama got elected, have started stepping up and taking political power, right? They're showing up in spaces that ordinarily they wouldn't show up in. So running for office mm -hmm. is a big one. And they're winning. They're also stepping up and saying, like, like you need to be intentional about inclusion. You know, I got this when I first got elected, right? Like, when are you going to start being in intentional about diversifying your staff? You know, and I learned, I learned very quickly, you know, what intentionality is. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, you know what? Yeah, like you have to be intentional about it. You can't just assume it's going to happen. You have to make this kind of stuff happen. So people stepping up, taking power, saying you have to be intentional about these things. To me, it's beautiful. To me, it's, 
you know, I, I don't get scared when I see a woman in a headscarf in Congress. But that really bothers some people. And whether it's fear of the unknown or whether it's overt racism, and some would argue that those two are inextricably linked together, right? That fear is actually based on white supremacy. Donald Trump is now using language that is giving people permission to say some of these things out loud. And the Republican Party is silent. You know, you, you cannot have our you cannot have leaders who won't lead based on the best values that this country has laid out. We, we just can't have that because that sends us down a really dangerous path. You know, what, what won't they do to get him reelected? It's frightening. Right. What, what won't they let him say to get reelected so that they could keep their power? I never, I never thought I would witness this. Never, never thought I would witness this kind of complicit silence from a political party. And I think that is what I'm scared of the most. That is, that is what can be the, the downfall of this, of this country. Before we hear your final song choice, yes. I believe you have chosen to resurrect a <laughs> historical icon to deliver your eulogy. Tell me about yes. this man. So Thomas Paine was a political pamphleteer, philosopher, an activist. And the pamphlets that he wrote, uh, Common Sense, basically, uh, he just very succinctly spoke to the reasons why we needed to kick England to the curb, right, and become our own country. But there's another piece of him... He wrote this pamphlet called The Age of Reason, and it basically is his polemic on why everyone should be a deist and why organized religion is really corrupting. You know, I had I grew up Catholic. I was questioning things like, wait a minute, you're telling me I have to go into a, a dark confession booth um, and, and tell a man my sins and then he's gonna forgive me like first of all i'm i'm just not comfortable with that sure (laughs) i'm just not comfortable with that uh i did it just didn't make any sense to me so i i came down to nashville and i read age of reason for the first time and i was like i can be spiritual without having to follow these very what i thought were artificial rules about religion um, I still, probably because of the way I was raised, think that these kinds of events, these these funerals should have some spirituality infused in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what better person to deliver the, the eulogy <laughs> than, than the person who, who, you know, just is responsible for, I think, so much love of nationalism in a really good way and love of country and just love of humanity. And, I, you know, I think this is just the perfect synopsis of the kind of things that he wrote and what he felt in his heart. And this is a paraphrase, but the world is my country, all mankind are my brethren, and to do good is my religion. I mean, it doesn't get any more simple sure. than that. Would you like him to read 
his own words, or would you like him to read something else, perhaps? So, you know, again, going to be up to him, but there was a poem that was delivered by Elizabeth Alexander for Barack Obama's inauguration. And and look, hey, you know what might be a great idea? It, maybe they can appear together, mm. right? Basically, it's all about it's all about love, love beyond marital, filial, national love that casts a widening pool of light, love with no need to preempt grievance. In today's sharp sparkle, this winter air, anything can be made, any sentence begun, on the brink, on the brim, on the cusp, praise song for walking forward in that light. They were both about in their in you know almost what 300 years apart sure. both basically saying the same thing and i just thought it'd be really cool for them to to meet i think so let's hear your fifth song choice mary what is it ah uh, yes this is this i hope everybody be walking out to okay. Okay. <laughs> it's the staple singers freedom highway and you gotta leave everybody on a high note right i mean i think that's typical of of any any event you don't want people sort of walking out all sullen. Mm -mm. So this is, again, has a very spiritual element. Um, it also mentions some things that are um, not quite right with this country and that there's room for improvement. And um, it's about freedom and it's about love and it's very upbeat. The Staple Singers and the very rousing Freedom Highway, Mary Mancini's final fantasy song choice. Uh, Mary, I believe you have a specific request for your body after you die. What would you like to happen? Cremation, for sure. Uh, kept in an urn in Washington, D.C. And, you know, I'm not quite sure. I haven't worked out the part of who will be responsible for doing this, but I would really like to be carried out to every march in Washington and, and march along with with the folks because we seem to be always marching in Washington and we make a lot of progress but we also it's, it's like you can't believe we're still fighting these battles right so whether it's women's reproductive health and justice or uh, you know march against gun violence and f just to be for people to be able to feel safe when they go to church or to school or, you know, it, it's, there's always going to be something that we need to make sure our elected leaders, who, by the way, represent us, I think they forget that sometimes, uh, they need to be sort of shaken awake and say, listen to us, right? So I want to be right. I still want to be there. I want somebody to carry me out in an urn and just walk with me or, I don't know, pull me in a, like a little radio flyer yeah. <laughs> or something. Many options. There's so many options. that I'm going to leave that up to whoever, you know, the details I'm not concerned with, but...
Wonderful. Mary, this has been such a delight. Thank you for taking us through your fantasy funeral. Thank you so much. This is, it was weirdly my pleasure to be here. <laughs> Thank you. My Fantasy Funeral is brought to you by We Own This Town. Full versions of the songs chosen today can be heard on our Spotify playlist. Find out more at myfantasyfuneral.show. I'm Ryan Briegel. Thank you for listening.